0: Good evening and welcome to Duke University Chapel. I'm James Todd, communications manager here at the chapel. I am about to invite up our distinguished panelists and moderator, but before that, I would like to make two invitations to you all. The first is that following our conversation, you are invited to a reception, a dessert reception over in the Alumni Memorials Common, which is in the Divinity School. So if you head out that way, our staff and signs will direct you to the Alumni Memorials Common. The second invitation is to come back to the chapel tomorrow evening. Uh, We have our choral Vespers worship service at 6 p.m. and our Vespers ensemble will be joined by the St. Martin's Voices Choir all the way from London. And St. Martin's Voices will stay on and at 7.30 tomorrow evening, present a program of great sacred music in conjunction with uh, Dean Wells, who we're about to hear from. And with that, I would like to invite up our uh, panelists and our moderator for this conversation. This evening's conversation is titled Preaching and the Public Square. It is part of our bridge panel series, which seeks to connect people with this, from disparate walks of life in order to discover shared pathways towards the beloved community of God. The panelists need a little introduction. They are known to many of you and even beloved here in the chapel. I will uh, begin at the far left here. The Reverend Dr. Sam Wells is Vicar of St. Martin's in the Fields Church in London and was a Dean of Duke Chapel 2005 to 2012. The Reverend Dr. Luke Powery, of course, is our current Dean, also Associate Professor of Homiletics at Duke's Divinity School. Bishop William Williman is currently Professor of the Practice of Christian Ministry at Duke Divinity School and was dean here of the chapel 1984 to 2004. If you're counting, that's four decades worth of deanship uh, up here this evening that we're delighted to hear from. Uh, we're also honored to have this evening Mr. Frank Stachio as our moderator. Uh, he is host of WNC Radio's The State of Things and a warm and familiar voice uh, to many of us in the car and on podcast. Frank will be asking um, the questions at the beginning, but you will have an opportunity to ask questions um, later in the conversation. So look for an index card, and you may write your question on the index card. And then uh, when it is time, Grace, who is one of our chapel scholars, Grace is there. Um, she's one of the students here at the chapel. She will uh, collect the cards and bring them forward. And with that, I would uh, like it to turn it over to Frank.
1: Thank you, James. Thank you very much. What a pleasure to be here and to see all of you. And I have to say I'm deeply honored to be here with these three men and with you in this space. Uh, I have yet each of them on uh, our program. They have been honestly have brought some of the greatest wisdom and some of the greatest conversation to our program that I think I've had in the 12 years I've done it. And I'm honored to be here tonight to have this live conversation about what I consider to be a very important subject. So why don't I start right now? I think the first question, if we're talking about preaching in the public square, is whether or not uh, preachers have a responsibility to connect their thought, their preaching, to not just the public square but to current events to what's happening now is it the responsibility of a preacher to ensure that every sermon and every homily is in some way connected to the day-to-day lives both public and private of the of the uh, i would say public the, the public lives the headlines um that concern all of us sam wells can i start with you
2: um i'd say no it isn't um I I hope that's not too much against the grain Uh, uh, I think you if you have shown your congregation that you can be trusted to speak truthfully about God and to speak truthfully about what it is to be a human being then you might gain permission to speak about more sensitive and controversial things Uh, and I make it a rough policy to speak about things uh such as the things that are very much on people's minds tonight you know maybe about one in ten uh you don't ever you know the worst thing in preaching you can be is boring uh the last thing you want your congregation to feel is when you step up into the pulpit they already know what you're going to say uh It's very easy to become boring about politics and it's particularly uh, easy uh, to, because you can become very passionate about it, to mistake the faithful exposition of Scripture and proclamation of the gospel for the very sincerely held convictions that you may exchange, you know, in the bar afterwards. Uh, But they're not the same thing. You've been hired and commissioned and invited to preach about God and salvation, uh, from time to time, you need to point out that the gospel is always personal and always political, uh, but you have to choose your moment and you have to do it properly. You can't do it in glancing blows that just make stray remarks. Uh, you have to do something that's clearly grounded either in a scriptural exegesis or in doctrinal exposition. Uh, and doesn't sound like you're just another person of your particular social background sounding off about your personal views. Dean Powery. Sure. I think my take on this uh, question
3: is, I think any preacher, the the calling is to preach the gospel, first and foremost, and I think, as as Sam said, it is personal, it is communal, it is... Political, and But what I mean by political is having to do with the city-state, having to do with our world. It's, it's not thinking about bipartisan politics, right? The gospel isn't Republican or Democrat, liberal or conservative. Um, it has to do with Jesus Christ. And, and I think there are times, and we've seen that historically, that there are times that explicit... Headlines may be mentioned, but um, I think I would agree that it 's not necessarily the norm, but I also want to say that the preaching the gospel has to do with the intersection of the biblical text and context in our world that somehow hearers as they listen um, there 's a resonance that this is pro nobis this is this is for us mm-hmm. right whether it mentions headline news or not. Somehow it's intersecting with our lives, our world, and there are many ways to do that, that that can happen. Um, But I I think I also would wanna say, yeah, the gospel, even if we think about Jesus in the proclamation of the gospel, I mean, he was the gospel, so in, in word and deed, and he was very much engaged with what was going on in the world, um, and society and, and so I think there is also this challenge for us to be engaged in word and deed So um, as it relates to the, the, the political realm
4: okay. well. I was a little disturbed when Sam said uh, you shouldn't d- do this in glances and blows and I'm guilty of that I, I confess it <laughs> Uh, sometimes you want to get into something and get out right away and move on Uh, but uh, yeah I I like that I think uh, for me preaching must be biblical and it that's kind of my job and that's something I know about and I think I've been authorized to do that by the congregation um but of course, if you know much about the Bible, you know that it's, uh, it, 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 get, it is political. Uh, I, and uh, as far as contemporary events, I think uh, one of the difficulties sometimes we, we preachers have is it's, 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 um, it, it's hard, it, it's not self-evident <laughs> what the word from the Lord might be on various contemporary events another, another problem I think we have is <clears throat> um, one reason you come to church and listen to a sermon I think is to pay attention to, to what's uh, important the, the, the bio, scripture sets the tone for the conversation and the subject matter and a lot of the things that the world says oh this is very important this is a current event uh, you need to focus on this scripture might say mm, you know it's not that big in the scheme of things and um, so sometimes church can seem to people out of touch with current events or reality and uh, and I remember the person who accosted me at Duke Chapel at the door and said you know you, you preachers never talk about anything that that I'm deeply concerned about. And I said, but I know you and I know some of the stuff you're concerned about. And it's just not that interesting. I mean, we, so, so I think that, that is the dilemma. Hmm. It's, it's wonderful though when, uh, you know, when scripture gives you something that, that is stunningly connected. I was in Episcopal church in Durham the first Sunday of the year the assigned gospel and the lectionary was the flight into Egypt. And the young preacher got up and said, today is the day we all gather as a church and thank God that Egypt received the Holy Family as refugees and immigrants. Uh, because if they had not, we, we might not have been saved. And I thought, wow, that's so
1: uh, I, I love that I, I know what you 're interested in, and frankly it 's not that interesting. is that one of those glance is that one of those glancing blows uh, that you uh, deliver now and then
4: you, you don 't right. want an extended conversation i guess not. Uh, you want a glance that 's a want- pretty much a conversation yeah. stopper <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
1: the but but the fact is the church to be church right to have a structure you need there has to be a certain amount of a certain degree of moral certainty about things right there has to be if you can you, There has to be a degree of certainty. There is doctrine. There are exegesis. There are ways of explaining things. I'd like to play a clip, maybe to expand this conversation and take it in a slightly different direction. This is Desmond Tutu, and it's from a talk that he gave in 1986. And if we have that ready, I'd like to play that clip right here, if we can.
5: And the scriptures say to us, we have a God. A God who is forever a God who takes sides. He scandalizes people because there he was, choosing to be on the side of that rebel of slaves, to lead them out of bondage into the promised land of his kingdom. And he is forever the same, yesterday, today, and forever. A God who chooses to be on the side of the oppressed, of the hungry, of the homeless, of the despised ones. And and, and so we are able to say to the perpetrators of injustice and oppression anywhere and everywhere in the world, you have already lost. Uh You You have lost, you have lost, you have lost. How can you take on God?
1: Desmond Tutu in 1986. Fair degree of certainty there. Uh, an interpretation of a scripture, the very one that you reference, uh, that puts God on the side of the oppressed and says to those who would inflict injustice on them, you just wait. He's certain. So what, what do we do about that? I mean, there's a, a case where... Um, it's an, it, And it, it appears to me that for every issue, according to this brief clip um, we, know, we know where God stands do we and how do you preach that alright Luke you're next <laughs>
3: <laughs> I think um, when it comes to God I think just on that point first if we knew everything about God we would be God so there, there's a level of comprehensibility, but there's also a level of incomprehensibility. Um, we don't know everything um, that there is to know. There's, there's a level of intellectual and spiritual humility that is important in the Christian life. And, but at the same time, even knowing that, we, we sort of follow the path of faith-seeking understanding Right? Which, and a part of that in the Christian tradition is engaging scripture, interpretation. And I, I think it would be hard to argue against as we, if we sort of look at the whole counsel of God um, that we often, as Desmond Tutu would say, we often find God on the side of the oppressed. Um, Jesus himself was poor, was an oppressed Jew, was, as Howard Thurman in his book, Jesus and the Disinherited, was for those uh, whose backs are up against the wall. And in many ways, that's, that's the Jesus I want to follow, um, and which is so often why Thurman would make a distinction between the religion of Jesus and Christianity, interestingly enough. Um, This was a man who obviously grew up in the time of segregation, was sort of in the generation of Martin Luther King Sr., Baptist minister, deans of the chapel at Boston and Howard. But coming out of a particular lens, um, which I totally understand, he focused in many ways on the human Jesus, who Jesus was, but in relationship to the poor, even if we, what we call the inaugural Sermon of Jesus in Luke. It's the poor, it's the oppressed, it's the captive. It's inescapable, this idea that we follow a God um, in Jesus who um, walked in the wilderness and um, was with the poor, had no place to lay his head, was a refugee, as you mentioned, Will. Um, And so in many ways, we follow this God while at the same time, our understanding is not the totality of who God is. Mm. It, it doesn't cover all that is can be said about who God is.
1: Um, all right, Will Willman.
4: Um, I think, to me, Scripture is pretty clear. Uh, this this God has certain commitments and uh, and and. and Jesus of Nazareth becomes a kind of unsubstitutable you know you, you can't make God anything you'd like to make God. God is a Jew from Nazareth who lived briefly and uh, uh, died violently and rose unexpectedly and, and we're kind of stuck with that and uh, and I think that particularly you come in a place like Duke Chapel, uh, I remember uh, Will Campbell, who was uh, a friend of mine, uh, preached some memorable sermons from Duke Chapel. And I remember the first time I laid him in for the service, he looked around, and uh, I said, uh, it is a beautiful building, isn't it? He said, that wasn't what I was thinking. And I said, what were you thinking? And he said, he's sure come a hell of a long way from Bethlehem. Uh, well...
5: Mm-hmm that. Mm-hmm.
4: And I think uh, for somebody privileged privileged powerful well to do like me uh I think it's helpful just to try to keep acknowledging that great gap uh that for me when Jesus comes it's often with judgment uh and uh there it, it, on the other hand it's Kind of we, we sort of gather and we, the business of our gatherings is, who is God? A, and then B, what's God up to? And then C, how can we get on board with that? Uh, and therefore, okay, God takes sides, okay. By the way, God has not taken the side that, that you're in uh, right now and your privileges and power and all. But uh, what does that Mean for you, and uh, uh, I remember. Well, uh, I was thinking many of you have heard all my stories, uh, and uh, uh, but uh, I remember we invited a group of students over to our house uh, after chapel one Sunday, and we're all we had a picnic, and we then we they're playing basketball, and this student said. Uh, you know, I've never been in a faculty home the whole time I've been at Duke. And I said, well, that's terrible. I believe in relating to students. Our home is open to students. Uh, I like students. And uh, he said, you know, I'm so glad to be here. I said, you have a beautiful home. I said, well, thank you. He said, let me ask you, you know, as a Christian, how do you justify having such a nice home? Mm-hmm. And I said, Okay, this is over. Uh, <laughs> I will never admit a student into my house again. Uh, but it, to me, it was kind of a great moment. And, and I love that about student, some students in that moment, that they kind of remind you, hey, by the way, J- Jesus Christ was not a tenured professor at a major university. So.
2: I've just got three things to say about the <laughs> <laughs> the Desmond Tutu uh, quotation. Uh, the first is, um, think about when he said it and about who's in charge of South Africa now. Uh, Kin Hubbard said, I wonder how long the meek will keep the earth after they inherit it. I think we have to be very careful about the sense that once we've thrown out the oppressors, we ourselves would do a much better job. So the second thing to say is, uh, he's talking about the Egyptians oppressing the Israelites. Um, If you look at who consumes the majority of the world's resources today in the face of the ecological crisis, Uh, it's uncomfortable reading for people living in America to find out which side of that story they're on today and to preach week after week the message of judgment that says hey y'all, you're the Egyptians is a brave person in any congregation and the third thing to say is it's debatable today in the story of the oppressors and the Egyptians and the Israelites or should we say the Israelis uh, who are the oppressors and who are the oppressed in Gaza today I think that leads to the question then once once
1: you if you do assume that God takes sides and for the moment you assume you know which side you were on I was raised Catholic and the Catholic bishops when I was coming of age all knew that God was on the side of the United States of America against the people of Vietnam. And they knew that because they felt that there was an atheistic communism that was going to envelop the world, apparently not enough faith in their own God to, uh, to wipe out the scourge. And so under the American flag, which they were absolutely convinced God, uh, God flew in heaven, um, said God was on their side. This, this leads to the problem of deciding, and I think you've all addressed it, When you know when God is on your side and when you know that you have the God who can be taken on. So to Luke's point, and both of you, I think all of you have one way or another mentioned this, that there is a certain amount of humility that you need to have coming in. We can't know God fully. In that sense, then, what is the role of the pastor and what is the role of the church? How do you preach in the face not of certainty, which was the first part of this discourse, but in the acknowledged uncertainty, what do you do now? Because you're recognized as the authority. Will Willeman, I want to start with you this time.
4: Uh, you know, humility, Jesus Christ induces humility in us, uh, you know. Who crucified Jesus? Who, who, who betrayed Jesus? Well, his own inner circle, that's all in the story. And uh, I think uh, one of the challenges is not allowing our humility to paralyze us. Uh, John Milbank, a theologian, says uh, modern the- Christian is, it has a sort of false humility. Uh, God, oh, God, we, we can't say anything for sure about God. Uh, that would be intellectually uh, wrong, wrong. Uh, uh, God is large and indefinable and, and indescribable, and uh, uh, etc. Et well, you know, we wish uh, God is a Jew from Nazareth uh, that uh, that that revealed the truth about God. Uh, we that's a claim. So it it does mean that uh, I can sure be humble about my own knowledge, my own abilities, and and strength to change things. At the same time kind of my greatest claim is for reasons not only to, to Jesus Christ he picked me uh, to be his spokesperson uh, to be his witness and so on Sunday morning I address a bunch of people many of whom I wouldn't have selected if I were putting the army together uh, <laughs> but uh, they're the ones Jesus has convened and and uh, I love those moments. I didn't have as many as I wish, but I love those moments when someone would come out and say, uh, I've got a very tough decision this week. The service was helpful. Uh, or, uh, the person who comes out and says, uh, you know how hard it is to be a Christian and a sophomore at the same time. (laughs) And, uh, and I was, you know, well, as a preacher, you get to equip that. And, and so I'm, I'm, I do feel that Jesus Christ chooses not to save the world by himself. He keeps enlisting, uh, delegating. And so part of the role of preaching is to say to people, uh, ask questions. Whose side are you on? Uh, wh- wh- where are you investing your energies? How are you utilizing the gifts God's given you? Or is that just for yourself or so?
1: All right. Luke Powery. Luke Powery. All right. You're in it. Uh,
3: That's me. <laughs> <laughs> you, you can just say what Will said. <laughs> that's good. That uh, two things come to mind around that question. Um, I think the first is, Uh, really a confession that we make, a profession that we make, a claim that we make. And it has to do with, um, in times of, so with the uncertainty, that there's still a confession we make that God is with us. Um, That even with all of our questions and cries of anguish, um, concerns, that we believe that God is with us, God's presence, which means we don't necessarily have all of the answers, but God has chosen to be with us through God's love, has chosen us. Um, And then the other thing is a story in Acts where there are disciples, it says, who had not heard of the Holy Spirit. They were disciples, but they had not yet heard of the Holy Spirit. And so they asked Paul, um, you know, what is the Holy Spirit? And Paul prays for, uh, over some people. And what you have, it says they prophesied and they spoke in tongues. And, and so in many ways to me it represents that the gift of the Spirit is both comprehension, that's the prophesying, the speaking, but also not comprehending. Incomprehensibility is a gift of the Spirit as well. And so to rest in the uncertainty can also be the gift
4: not to get the Pentecostal in here,
2: but thank you.
4: <laughs> <laughs> Got it in there well.
2: Uh, I preached my first sermon in Liverpool, in England, in 1987, and it was uh, Remembrance Weekend, as we call it, 11th, around armistice time, 11th of, of November. And I, I, I can't remember the details of my sermon. It was, it was utterly compelling. Uh, um, (laughs) but not as it turns out unforgettable Um, and there was a woman who was sitting straight this was a small bunch of about a dozen people in an inner city church there was a woman in the front of me who was nodding at all the really good parts and so when I'd finished uh, I decided rather than say the creed, I thought, I thought it would be good if we sang a hymn together, and and I, the Spirit took me, and I, I realized I should I should be bold, and I should say to this congregation, you know, who were advanced in age, many of them, you know, this is probably a special weekend for a lot of you, so you may want to choose a particular hymn, uh, and actually it turned out nobody did want to choose a particular <laughs> hymn, so... <laughs> I looked straight at the woman who'd nodded at all the right moments, and I said, well, I think maybe the Lord wants you to choose a particular hymn tonight. And the person next to her said, "Uh, don't worry about her love, she's deaf. That story gave me, I hope, a a decent sense of humility about preaching, (laughs) which I hope has never left me. I think the theology of that story is that what the Holy Spirit does in the heart and mind of a listener is actually sometimes so different and almost completely unconnected with what was in the heart and mind of the speaker. And so... The preacher can pray any prayer they want to pray uh, in the introduction to their sermon, but the real prayer is that the Holy Spirit will do something with whatever people hear. Which, uh, and, And it's only the ego of the preacher that needs that to be identical to the intention of the preacher. But you see what you've done now, because you really have raised the
1: question about the role then of the pastor in in that milieu. Once you set up that context and say that the Spirit is always among us and we don't know what can generate activation and manifestation of the Spirit, we don't know what that is. Well, then we really do raise a very serious question about the role of, of the preacher and I, and I want to put it in a different context but I think you've you've raised a good question but the context really is the religious coalition and I know that you were very deeply engaged in that when you were here Sam Wells and ro- co-wrote a book about uh, the, the, the notion of being with those who are uh, who are in need rather than being for them and this is a great act of humility all by itself and as a member of that coalition, I'll just say this briefly, personally, to set up this this question. Um, It was utterly transformative to go through the process of of because I thought that was easy. Oh yeah, I'm with you. I'm with you. Um, But to be with you, I really had to shatter my ego. I had to shatter. I had to explore my rage at those who are doing the oppressing. Uh, Identify that rage as actually grasping for power. My fear of powerlessness that my outrage and my articulation of the problem and the people who are causing it had everything to do with my fear of powerlessness. And when I recognized that and acknowledged my powerlessness and only then could I be with the people whose powerlessness had always been unquestionable and who didn't have to bring themselves through that. And I and I only tell that story because I wonder if, if the pastor has that kind of a role. In other words, the really challenging part of pastoral care has less to do with issuing the outlines of a morality, whatever morality that may be, than, than it has to do with guiding us to that inner self, the one that we find most difficult to meet. And I leave that to you. Let me start
2: with Sam because... I, I always try to, if we're still staying with preaching, I, 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 I guess to make the comparison to pastoral care, I mean, I, I've just stepped back into my old office at Luke's Kind Invitation the first time in, in seven years, and it was uh, the first thing that I thought about was uh, two of the chairs that are in there are the same chairs that were, were in there uh, when I was there, and, and about what I was trying to doing do when people, and I'm looking out and seeing a number of people who sat in those two chairs with me during my time here, uh, what I was trying to do in those conversations. And I hope it's not giving away too many trade secrets to say what I was trying to do is to hear the person out, to be with them. Uh, And then the crucial moment in the conversation is the pause when, when they've finished... And then I would say, was there something else? And whether it's an undergraduate student who learns this at some stage in high school, some mysterious pre-university time that I didn't have access to, uh, or whether it's a person in the middle of life or or whatever it might be, nine times out of ten, the big story they told you when they walked in the door actually isn't the real thing. It's, it's, it's only when you say, and was there something else? That by trusting you after li- them listening to them and not interrupting them 25 minutes, <laughs> they then spend the next 20 minutes telling you the real story. Mm-hmm. But they didn't trust themselves to articulate or you to hear until, until you had that silence which opened the door. And, and I try to structure sermons in pretty much the same way that's to say, um, the, the and, and there's many people here who have heard far more of my sermons than is good for anybody, so you can probably tell this back to me, but the introduction is usually fairly soft. It's often self-deprecating. It's a story about when I was a child. It's something rather strange that happened in a film, whatever it might be. Uh, and then about a third of the way through there's something that turns that into uh, which, where, where suddenly you're saying, oh, no, no, this is this is really serious. And again, you gain the trust of the listener by them recognizing that the thing you've mentioned at the very bottom is what's at the bottom of their pond too, not necessarily uh, at the bottom of their pond in identical um content but in quality of emotion and it's that's what makes people walk out and say I thought you were just talking to me because it obviously you're not talking about their particular circumstances but it's that ugh but again you only, if you started the sermon with that it would just be impossible to hear and they also probably think that the preacher was so emotional they wouldn't be able to contain it and that creates so much anxiety in a congregation that they won't hear the rest um but it's it's probably something that I learned in pastoral care and then applied to preaching rather than the other way around. Will?
4: I, I think, um... I like, you know, is there something more? I mean, to me, the Holy Spirit is the... something more. Uh, Sam, I think Sam told me he met me through a sermon I preached uh, entitled More. Uh, here. But, um... Uh, and it means that I never preach alone. I, I must say uh, uh, Luke has spoken very positively about the Holy Spirit and uh, the uh, i have just testify that I think one of the greatest challenges I had in preaching was learning to work with the Holy Spirit. I mean, working under the Holy Spirit. Uh, I, I think I like to be in control. Uh, it's probably a gender problem. Uh, <laughs> but I I just kind of like to know where we're going to be by noon and and all. well a a preacher quickly learns why the Holy Spirit just loves to rip some sermon out of your hands and romp wildly through the congregation Uh, I've noticed Holy Spirit in my experience often speaks uh, to the wrong people uh, people that I had no intention of communicating with Uh, and also I'm but but it could be hopeful for a preacher because uh, I've never succeeded in preaching so poorly that the Holy Spirit didn't find some way to intrude and say something to somebody. And uh, you have these experiences. People come out and they say, that was just wonderful. That was the best sermon. And And I'm thinking, hey, I know about more about preaching than you do. That was not a good sermon. That, that was bad. But, but in those moments, you realize we don't work alone. And uh, God talks to God wants to talk to. Uh, and on the other hand, God appears to not talk to those that God does not want to talk to. And, um, and it, it's just, it's part of the adventure of preaching. And um, it, it, that is the something more. Rec- Preachers are here tonight, and says preachers always say more than they intended to say, mm. and I think that's the Holy Spirit. Mm.
1: Before we go to Luke, I just have to say I love the fact that you just said that uh, Luke, Luke spoke very positively of the Holy Spirit.
4: He's a Pentecostal. It just no. you know
1: he's yeah. very has yeah. very nice things about the Holy Spirit. <laughs> oh, I <of> just. <laughs> I just, Here, I, just yeah. I just remember once hearing I just remember once hearing a sermon where the preacher said it was a priest actually who said Jesus said and I think I agree.
6: <laughs> <laughs> anyway, you're not off the hook, Lou. Go That's ahead.
3: <laughs> Jesus said <laughs> um, <laughs> no, no, um, just to pick up on what Sam was talking about, listening. Listening. Often as preachers, we don't think, and there's not much literature on it in in terms of the preaching world, homiletical literature, in terms of thinking about the role of silence and the role of sort of a sacrament of pause or what I call the hush homiletic and how it's the first posture uh, for a preacher or a prophet is to listen. And that's to, to God, the scripture, to Scripture, to the other, mm-hmm. the person. And from that, but because I, in, in my own perspective, think listening is really a form of loving. It's a form of love. And in the end, I think pastoral ministry, preaching, it's a. ultimately the hope is for it to be a rendezvous of love. Uh, Love for people, love for God, Um, you know, love for life, the gratitude to be alive. So for me, listening is so much linked to loving that
1: person or a people, um, a place, a God. I want to ask another question here, and I'm going to uh, ask also to play another another tape clip. And I'm going to go out of order here. I'm going to go to the third clip in just a second. But before I do, I could ask, could I ask Grace? to pass among you and if you have a question grace is gonna hand out some cards and you can feel free to write your questions on those cards and pass them up and then we'll ask those uh... but i'd like to i'd like to play this clip this is rosemary radford rutherford uh, ruth of ruther this is this is sad that i don't know her because she's one of my peeps turns out she's a catholic and i didn't know her uh... rosemary radford ruther uh... And she's. this is from a, a talk entitled Religion as a Sacred Canopy or Prophetic Hope. Can we play it?
6: Christians today tend to forget that mainstream Protestants and Catholics alike, drawing on the Augustinian tradition, continued to justify slavery until well into the 19th century. A hierarchical model of the church was closely connected with a hierarchical model of society. Now in contrast to this view of religion as sacred canopy as the the blessing of the established order, there is deeply rooted in scripture an alternative perspective. In the prophets and in Jesus particularly, religion is often seen as socially unsettling and even a subversive power. In the words of the Magnificat, the prayer of Mary, at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke, it says that Christ will come to put the mighty down from their thrones and raise up the humble.
1: It's Rosemary Radford Ruther. So my question is, whether or not the church has a responsibility, and preachers have, uh, as their agents and assigns, have the responsibility to uh, upset the social order. And is there, uh, do you need to be on guard for, uh, on guard against a religious order that can consciously or unconsciously be in service to a social order which may or may not be um, socially unjust? Will Willemann, let me start with you.
4: I think the answer is yes <laughs> to that. Um, uh, you know, Jesus Christ uh, was crucified for a reason. For uh, the, the first people to recognize that he was a threat to the established social order were the powerful and, and uh, those that crucified him. And um, I was thinking, though, as, as Rosemary Radford Ruther was preaching, I think she preached that sermon in the seventies. It was uh,
1: well, it says here nineteen eighty two, but nineteen eighty
2: two, yeah. Uh, I think for, for yeah. Will the seventies went on. For Will, the seventies went on. The, uh, <laughs> Quite a lot longer than for the rest of us.
4: Didn't we agree we wouldn't criticize each other? Uh, the the uh,
3: that's why that's why I'm sitting in between yeah, them, yeah. actually.
4: Uh, the, uh, uh, but as she was talking, I was thinking uh, one. There there was a day when those sentiments were probably had more wallop than they do today. They they sentiments I hear a good bit around here, but um, at Duke Chapel, one thing I think it makes this place unusual is that uh, there are there is preaching that would be called disruptive, radical in many places. Sometimes that kind of preaching here can be kind of pandering to the establishment. Uh, I was telling, uh, Sam, we, this summer we had a succession of guest preachers and a lay person who is here tonight. Uh, after, after this, uh, uh huge screed against, uh, the present administration of, in Washington, not at Duke. Uh, but uh, and I'll, uh, anyway, this, this, this layperson said to me, wow, you preachers are so courageous. Wow. To stand up in Duke University Chapel and criticize Donald Trump. Wow. That must take courage, doesn't it? And I... S- <laughs> You know That's the kind of thing that makes you despise lay people. <laughs> but uh, but, it, but, but it, would, would, would y'all agree with me that that, that is a, the peculiarity of this place? And uh, it, at times when I would travel, people would say, oh, I'll be against the Duke Chapel. You can just get away with saying anything. And I said, often you can, and that's not a compliment to the congregation. But, yeah, what do you think, Sam?
2: Um, if, you, if you look at Mark's gospel, it's, it's three stories. It's, it's Jesus in conversation with a committed group of disciples. Uh, it's Jesus in conversation with the, the poor. The, the, the word oklos, meaning the crowd, is mentioned, I think, 37 times in 16 chapters. And it's Jesus in dialogue, sometimes testy dialogue with the authorities of the time. Uh, And of course, you know, at the cross, those three stories all weave together back into one story. I I think I, I take that as a guide for preaching, that you are always addressing the intimate relationships of faith, Um, the ones that faith brings about and the ones that faith tests and questions, Uh, you're always in dialogue with those on the underside of history Uh, and very much aware that that could be you, perhaps has been you, maybe will be you, Um, and you're always going to be working out faith's relationship with those in authority, although one must never assume that the power all lies with them and The the truth always lies with oneself. Uh, But those three dialogues all bring their own temptations. You know, the temptation of the intimate is to make the gospel a little house on the prairie Mm -hmm. with wisdom whispered into ears uh, in nighttime reflections, but nothing more than that. The, The temptation of the second is to speak for the poor rather than with, or enable the poor to speak for themselves, even if they say things different from what you think the poor ought to think, which, rightly or wrongly, the poor do tend to think things different from what you think they should, they already ought to think, because of what they really ought to think is what you actually would say for them. And the temptation of the third is always to denounce, but never to build, you know, We have an institution across the road here, the Divinity School, which is a remarkable institution because it's a a growing institution of faith that has grown in an era when most people of faith have been denouncing institutions. That's taken a lot of courage and a lot of leadership against the grain, and I really admire it. Uh, so, So there's always temptations to either to choose one of those three or to domesticate or to fall into the easy option of those three. I think healthy preaching has a balance. Yeah. The, the only thing I would um,
3: add is I think there's often a tension, um, even in a, a glorious space like this, um, is what, how do you preach against the powers when you're propped up by the powers? Mm. And, I, and I think that is a living tension Um, institutional religion in many ways that has endorsed or baptized um, in the name of Christ um, as she points to the horrors of slavery or in other ways. I remember meeting with there were about eight CEOs um, that were here that was connected with a Duke alum who was a trustee at the time who, from all over the world. And they wanted to have a conversation about religion and spirituality. And we held that conversation in the crypt <laughs> of all places. Um, and what was so, this is about two years ago, intriguing about that, you had someone who grew up in the Anglican church but was no longer really connected. There was one... Um, let's say, um, practicing Christian, there was one practicing Muslim, and then the rest were sort of on the fringe. And in that conversation, it became very clear, and they affirmed the idea that it wasn't for them. It wasn't Jesus who was the problem. It was the institutional church. Um, And I think we live within that tension constantly, Um, and we have created institutions, divinity schools. I mean, this school has deep roots come out of the church, right, the university as a whole, and so it's a blessing in many ways, but there's this ongoing tension about how in this day, how can we be faithful um, in the midst of, you know, the powers that are at work?
1: Well, let's make that the next question. I don't know if those questions are out there, but we can take them now uh, and you can bring them, bring them up and we'll start asking them. But let me follow up on that and say, how do you address that? There is um, a growing um, unhappiness, dissatisfaction. People seem to be leaving. Millennials, we hear, are leaving the church because it's an institution and they don't trust institutions. Um, it, what's the responsibility of preachers who believe in what they're doing and actually believe in the institution, that the integrity of the institution? What is it about... Them or the institution that, um, that isn't making connection, and what responsibility do you have to thank you, uh, if any, <clears throat> to, to meet that challenge, and how do you do it, Sam?
2: I'm afraid I don't quite understand the question. Could you could Well if,
1: if we hear the millennials don't like institutions, they're running away from the church. They believe in spirituality, they believe in some kind of God, some kind of higher power, perhaps, but they don't like the institution. You represent an institution, what do you do about that? Do you say, Well, sorry, I hate to see you go, but I've got my I've got my church to defend, or is there some way in which you reconstruct either the church itself or try to help them reconstruct their understanding of what you do?
2: Well, I I I lived on a housing project in east of england for 6 years in the late 90s early 2000s but you can call them the 70s if you like <laughs> um, <clears throat> and and that was a that was an underclass what, what you could call an underclass estate and and what i learned there was that institutions are how we pass on wisdom from past to future And when you either lambast institutions or or live completely outside them, you actually infantilize yourself by making no way of passing wisdom on from past to future. And the tendency, of course, of those who are furious with institutions is to assume that there is no wisdom from the past that compares with my future. So actually, I, I would, from my own experience, raise an eyebrow at the, about the lack of humility that assumes that the problems in the world come from institutions uh, and can be solved by charismatic individuals. I think part of what we're experiencing in the populist movement not just in this country but elsewhere at the moment, is, is a similar naivety and arrogance and oversimplification that actually if you get the right person who can knock people's heads together, then you can somehow do a loop that bypasses the institution and achieves truth. But, but actually what's really going on is, is, is manipulation uh, and uh, oversimplification on on all kinds of levels. So, to the millennial, I say, not let's use a word like institution, which in itself sounds clunky and uh, and unexciting, Um, but let's have a conversation about what wisdom is and how, uh, and that's both wisdom in theory and in practice, uh, and how you pass that wisdom from one generation to another. Um, The surprising thing is how many millennials who denounce institutions and don't seem to have any concern for passing on wisdom from past to future end up practicing law.
6: Mm -hmm. (laughs)
2: Uh, Which, And what is law if not the codification of wise practice? passed on to the next generation.
1: Well, Sam, let me stick with you for one second because it does seem to me that Jesus preached mostly outside the synagogue and was very critical of His own religious tradition often. Uh, And while we, we know that Jesus was a Jew and He knew the Scripture, He didn't seem to be enamored with the institutions, nor did he preach within its walls, and um, had a very different message when he gave that great commission to his apostles to go out and preach this. That's how he expected the wisdom to be disseminated. And there's very little instruction about how to do it or creating an institution. How do you address
2: that? By reading the Acts of the Apostles. I mean, the Acts of the Apostles is a story. uh, You know, there's the... um, there's the famous story about the preacher whose secretary always wrote the preacher's sermons. And I'm sure you all know this story. And, and the secretary never got any credit. And one day the secretary lost their temper. And the preacher uh, was in the pulpit and said, and this points to the, the, the heart of the philosophical issue that faces the whole world today and turned over the page and that just saw the words, you're on your own now. <laughs> <laughs> and, <laughs> so, and, and so, the, you know, with all due respect to the Holy Spirit, the, the, the Acts of the Apostles are, you're on your own now. Mm-hmm. Now you've got to sort it out. Mm-hmm. And, of course, it's a, the Acts of the Apostles is a, <clears throat> a series of improvisations on what spirit-led institutions, what forms that can take. It, it's a, it's an undoubtedly a, a, a critique of the idea we could ever get the perfect institution and have some institutional form, some, dare I say it, some form of the church which would be so perfect that we would believe in that form rather than the spirit that infused it. But, it all, but even in just its short number of chapters, We've already seen that some, some models work better than others. Mm-hmm. Um, and every single disciple in the Acts of the Apostles 100% is believing that they are translating Jesus' transformation into sustainable form. Well, you don't have to use the I word, but you're doing the same thing mm-hmm. as building institutions. And then in Paul's letters and the other letters, we get various critiques of how those can go wrong, but they're all based on the assumption that you can't do without them. Mm. And at a crucial moment in Paul Paul's letters, that co- collectivity of institution is called the body of Christ. Mm. And so the idea that we have a thing called the Jesus, who is a free spirit and just dances around things and doesn't have to pass motions and doesn't have to go to conventions and all these ghastly things and we have a thing called the body of Christ which is somehow different from Jesus well the theological term for that is nonsense
5: <laughs> <laughs>
4: Yeah, I think we particularly in our culture we need to be careful you know turning Jesus into this uh, free spirit anti-institutionalist uh, I I thought sometimes Jesus' critique of the temple mechanisms and remind me of a lot of my critique of the university. Uh, It's, this is my home, this is, I, I critique the institution as a dedicated institutionalist as somebody who's been produced by the institution. I do think with millennials, we have some millennials here tonight they don't like to be categorized, so I'll probably pay for this, but um, the, uh, uh, when, when anybody says, you know, I, I, I don't like institutional religion or organized religion, what they mean is I don't like the church. Mm-hmm. That, that's, the church is the way Christians organize. And when Sam pointed to the Acts of the Apostles, I know a great commentary on the Acts of the Apostles. Um, the, um, but when Sam, I thought that was, you know, it is the nature of Jesus Christ not to save alone. He, he does his work in groups. He convenes 12 disciples. He, he sends people out in Matthew 28. Uh, and, and what does he say? Make disciples. Baptizing, teaching, uh, forming. Uh, Paul was a church planner. And, and I think... But it does point to a scandal in a radically individualized culture where autonomy and individuality and all is worshiped. I think Jesus has got his work cut out for him and uh, because part of being a Christian is being forced by Jesus to worship God with people you don't like and having to somehow break bread with them and listen to them, and, and um, that's just what Jesus does. And uh, this was a speech I wish I could have made at my general conference yesterday, mm-hmm. so I'm making it to you, <laughs> but, um, and, but so I, I think uh, there's a lot at stake here. And uh, it does concern me, declining attendance. Uh, it does concern me, people saying, well, I'm, I'm spiritual, but I just, I, I don't do the religion thing. Because uh, I just think Jesus is a, has a body. The way he takes up room in the world, the, the, the only way that, that he is most visibly present is, is called this ragtag group of people that gathers here. And uh, it, it's a heck of a way to, to save the world, but it, I think it is uniquely his way. That's
3: good. I, I th- the only thing I would say is maybe another way of talking about institutions, this hearing, is using the word body. So we have, there are bodies as a way to pick up on the Pauline metaphor for body, which signifies unity, right, togetherness. And so there are bodies mm-hmm. at work at play trying to
1: be as faithful you know to to jesus along the way we have time for a few questions uh and bear in mind i'm asking these questions to preachers which is why we have time for only a few (laughs) (laughs) and and the first one's a dilly so so take this can a christian have any degree of wealth and comfort Well, really, you—you're you're the guy with the big fancy alumni house. You were, I guess, you, you've willed that to. I, I, I hope so. Wealth, wealth, and comfort. <laughs> and I like to keep it, if you don't mind.
5: Yeah.
1: I mean, what about that—the—the the, the idea that—that that, uh, you know, one—can you be wealthy? Can you have uh, wealth and comfort and still call yourself a Christian?
2: Shall I mean, how about it? Uh, it's an issue I've struggled with for a lot of my life. Uh, I was very angry as a undergraduate. I was at Oxford University. It was only a little bit nicer than Duke. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I was very angry. It, it seemed to be, uh, you know, it, sh- it shocked me. Uh, some things changed my mind. Uh, one was to recognise what a what a mean person I was turning into, um, and, and I was I was becoming angry about beauty, and not just about wealth, and I was stopping being able to tell the difference between the two. Um, the, the second was when I had a lot of money in my own hands uh, about. 50 million dollars of government money that was poured through that same housing project that I uh, talked about before and I had a lot of influence how it was distributed and I realized how difficult it was to make the world better with money. And in fact, what that taught me was that uh, that, that poverty isn't fundamentally about money. Um, and that was where I realized that poverty is a mask on, we put on people to hide their true wealth and wealth is a mask to be put on people to hide their true poverty and that changed my life that discovery mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, uh, and so and then I married somebody who had who actually had money mm-hmm. and suddenly it was a different conversation not not you know she'd inherited some money uh, and and I realized that to simply give that money away was not honor somebody else's father and mother. Um, one had to spend that money in a way that made other people able to benefit from it. Um, this may sound a bit personal, but you know, we, we, we renovated a house on East Campus here and made it a, a, pl- a meeting place for people from the city and from the university and, uh, you know, and the wider community because it seemed better to do that than to bury the money in the hillside. It would seem better to put it to the use of the community. Uh, And so I think if you have, and John Wesley is, as ever, the best person on this sort of subject, but uh, giving it away is sometimes uh, abrogating responsibility and putting your own clean hands as being more important than, than wisdom... Um, but holding it in a way that means everyone can share it, uh, I think is 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 a way no. to get the best of both worlds. And I, I've come to realise about all my possessions uh, that the real test is: can I lend them or share them with others, or do they am I holding them so tightly mm. that I won't let anyone else touch them or see them? And, you know, if it's the latter, then it's a problem. If it's the former, then it's a gift, and it belongs to us all.
4: You know, you mentioned John Wesley, and I remember Dick Heisenreiter, who attends the chapel and was in the chapel choir, uh, accosted me one Sunday after I'd preached a real prophetic sermon uh, condemning everyone who had more money than I had. (laughs) Uh, And... uh, Dick said, Dick, who knows more about John Wesley, I mean, no stuff the Lord has forgotten. <laughs> uh, but uh, Dick said, you know, I think you preachers make a mistake in your castigation of, of, of the wealthy. And uh, I said, but, but I'm a Wesleyan. And he said, John Wesley had more rich people in his Methodist societies than uh, were in the uh, percentage of the population of London. And I said, wait a minute, all of his societies were in the poorest parts of London. And Dick said, they were, but uh, for reasons uh, that I'm not sure of, wealthy people were attracted to John Wesley's gatherings of poor people. And he said, and Wesley was relentless in his pursuit of their wealth in uh, saying here and he said he he had in his diary and dick has published john wesley's diaries uh, but he said he would go door to door and said i need uh 100 pounds today uh and they would say no and he said well then let us pray and then i will expect to check and uh he would cast them out of the society anyway i i think that point is it it's uh This is a place of the powerful and the privileged, uh, but we we do have a sacred obligation to help them find suitable vocations. And
3: I think that the key word is stewardship. I mean, to answer the question, yes. But the key word for me is stewardship. How are you using your wealth for the purposes of God in the world, in your community, even in your life, right? We're stewards, even of all of the wealth that we have here at Duke University or even thinking about Duke Chapel. We're stewards of the building. We're stewards of the people. We're stewards of our financial resources and human resources. And with all of these blessings, how can we be a blessing? Um, And so,
1: yes, is, is the answer. I'm going to ask one more. I'm sorry I don't have time to get to all of them, but there is a reception after this and you can corner them <laughs> and ask all your questions. Uh, if a preacher's calling is to preach the gospel, not politics, can you express in two or three sentences? Says that here, it's not me. Is, can you express in two or three sentences? And I think this is a good way to end. What is the gospel?
2: We live with the weight of the past, the pain inflicted upon us and the hurt that we have caused. And that gives us the prison of the past. We live with the fear of the future the anxiety about what lies to come and the terror about what lies beyond death. And that is the fear of the future and our lives are circumscribed by this prison of the past and fear of the future. Jesus gives us the forgiveness of sins that heals the past and gives us the life everlasting that unlocks the future. And so only when we are forgiven and empowered can we truly live in the present. In a nutshell,
3: you shall live and not die. Because Jesus loves me and you, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Two sentences, Will.
4: Uh, um, (laughs) Two sentences. In Jesus Christ, God is getting back what belongs to God. Don't you want to hitch on to that? Amen. I could do it. You knew I could do it.
5: You you knew I could do it.
1: (laughs) Thank you very much. What a pleasure. Thank you. There's a reception after this. James, do you uh, have any instruction for us, or do we all know what to do? We're just going there, apparently. Let the Spirit guide you. Thank you so much. Good night, everybody.